So a counselor friend shared with me, probably this was sometime last spring, a story about uh, one of his one of his friends uh, at the first church he worked at. Uh, this friend of his was a deacon in the church. We can just, for namesake, we'll call him Jim. And Jim uh, had committed an affair. And much as you would expect, condemnation kind of came roaring down at Jim. From church leaders, from his wife, from other friends. You know, how could you have been so selfish? What on earth were you thinking? Don't you know, like, don't you know this is sin? Like, hello? You've ruined your marriage and your family. Disgrace to the church. I think the once well thought of and respected deacon, uh, he could soon no longer look anyone in the eyes, as would kind of make sense. He became a walking billboard of shame. It took months, but finally my friend, the, the counselor guy, he was able to sit down with Jim and, and have a conversation. So they arrive at the lunch spot, and Jim mumbles, you know, go ahead, go ahead and say what you need to say. I've heard, I've heard from everybody at this point. I think this is where my friend pauses, and he says, okay, I will. Jim, what did, what did you long for? And this is where Jim kind of began to get frantic, turned a little squirrely. He, he didn't know what to say, so he just kind of sat in silence. He sat in silence for a long time until my friend begins to notice tears running down his face. So at that point, Jim whispers, I just wanted to be seen. My wife hasn't looked at me with desire for years. I longed to be longed for. I longed to be longed for. So obviously my buddy didn't answer back, well, you know, if that's the case, go ahead and just have at it. You know, have as many of these relationships as, as you want. Like, no, of course he didn't say that, right? I'm not up here commending sin. But my buddy does respond by saying, Jim, the longing you have to be longed for is a great desire. It's a great desire. And so as we look at the question this morning, have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? I think it's important for us to consider what it is exactly that God is asking Adam and Eve. If we probe this question a little bit more, try to get underneath the surface of of maybe what the question is getting at, I want to suggest that the inner dialogue of God's heart in this moment is sounding a little bit like this. Sounding a little bit like, have you eaten of the tree, my daughter, my son? I was with you. You were with me. I satisfied your deepest hunger. What was missing? What could have gone wrong? What could you have wanted that you didn't already have? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? Where have you now taken your hunger? It used to be for me. Where is it now? Where have you gone? I think another way of putting this question is, what is it you long for? What is it you long for at 1 a.m. when you're looking at you know, images on screen? What is it you long for in your friendships? What is it you long for when you get on social media? just want to be heard. What is it you long for in, in your job in Ann Arbor? Let me clarify real quick. Just because all of you might have friendships, for instance, uh, that doesn't mean you all long for the same things in those friendships. 
Does that make sense? Uh, as, as a case in point, when I, go, when I go out to lunch with my college students, I don't just assume I know why they want to meet with the pastor or why they've shown up to RUF. Oh, you must be a Christian. You know, tell me all about that. Uh, I actually end up, I, I probably annoy them at times because I ask such obvious questions. Like, what are you doing here? Why would you come to Michigan? Because if I don't ask these obvious questions, right, I miss the whole point. Of, of their hearts. I miss what they long for, why they're here, what it's all about. And so I hope that you see with the question, where have you taken your hunger, or what do you long for? It's a question that probes our stories. It makes logical sense, too, that God asks it here after the first two questions. Um, I know we're kind of parachuting into the middle of a sermon series, but uh, this is now the third question that God has asked Adam and Eve after they've eaten up the tree. Uh, and so if you will recap with me for a second, where are you is the first question. And it's a question of being known and how shame has informed every aspect of your identity. Who told you is a question of authority. And specifically, who informs you what to believe is true? And so now this third question, where have you taken your hunger? Now is a question of response. Or how your heart has responded to your own unique story. Because think, I mean, think through it with me here for a second, right? Of course, Adam and Eve had eaten of the tree of the knowledge of, of good and evil. Like, why else would God be asking that? I mean, maybe a cursory reading of it would suggest, like, man, is he really trying to just, like, give it to them? Is he really trying to just remind them of the fact that they failed? Or what is God doing here? I think my argument this morning is that what you do in response to your individual experience in life, or what is referred to as your story, will actually like determine what you believe. Let me repeat that for us one more time. What you do, the way you behave in life, is actually a response to your individual experience in life. More importantly, though, I want to argue that what is beautiful about the Christian gospel is that it presents a God who not only wants to know your shame-filled story, and that in and of itself would be kind of something amazing, right? A holy God who has made heaven and earth stooping down to know you and actually know the details of your life. That'd be kind of amazing. Or, depending on who you are, that might be kind of horrifying. But the best news, right, something even better than that, is that this God doesn't want to just know your story. He wants to intervene and give you a new story. He wants to actually do something in your midst that would profoundly change everything about you. And so in order for us to see this from the text this morning, I want to look at two points. Point number one, the cry of our broken stories. Point number two, the response of God the storyteller. And repeat this one more time for us. The cry of our broken stories and the response of God, the storyteller. In the summer of 2012, I was working at a Christian camp uh, in Black Mountain, North Carolina. It was kind of this sports camp, all, you know, all guys. But uh, there would be this really sweet moments where we could share the gospel with um, our campers in the morning and in the evening going to bed. And really transformative season for me. Um, but... <laughs> That's not why I tell this story. I tell this story because there was this really um, cute girl that uh, was working at the girls' camp. And unfortunately, this was before I met my wife, Catherine. Um, But, yeah, this cute girl, uh, a bunch of friends were going out to dinner that night. And I had a buddy in town 
And uh, I texted him. I said, hey, man, you know, I think this girl's really cute. You should, you should look for her at dinner. And um, I texted him that as soon as we got to the dinner place. And 20 minutes goes by, and I don't hear back from him. I'm like, what's going on? Why isn't he texting me back? And sure enough, I texted this girl, you know, hey, I think she's really cute. Be on the lookout for her. Um, and I, cr- I, like, I cringe in telling the story because, uh, it, like, I remember the cold sweat of that moment. Like, I remember it just being the worst, and I, I rushed off to the bathroom and just kind of sat there and panicked. Um, and to maybe state the obvious, right, like, it didn't go according to plan. But isn't that all of our lives? You might not have an embarrassing story like this one, but we all have broken stories that don't, accord, that don't go according to plan. The friend you no longer talk to, not, made, not making the cut for the school play way back in you know seventh grade. Even something like today, right? Having kids and uh, having this wonderful plan for how the day's going to go, and you have to turn around and go home because uh, you know kid number one or kid number two is just screaming, and uh, it's not going according to plan. For some of you, it's something a lot deeper, like maybe an unwelcome sexual encounter, or even the unexpected death of a loved one. We are a room full of broken stories. And like my silly example, these moments sear into our subconscious. Like, I can viscerally remember that experience, and it was almost ten years ago. We never forget them. They are part of our experience in this world now. It makes up kind of who you are. And you might say, so what? Like, Robert, this, this is life. It is what it is. Those things are bound to happen. Why are you up here going on about broken experiences? And totally, right? Totally. But I want you to see what happens after that broken experience. That emotionally abusive boy you dated in high school who broke up with you, and so now you come to college and you try to find the exact opposite type of guy that you dated in high school. It's like a pendulum swing in the other direction, right? And it doesn't have to be a a dating relationship. I realize not all you guys are college students. Right? Uh, you, you do something poorly or it goes wrong, and so you vow to do the exact opposite. Or you vow to never do this kind of experience again. The Christians you know are hypocrites, hypocrites and jerks. And so you come to the conclusion that the God of the Bible isn't worth your time. Either that, or you become a secular evangelist, letting people know just how much they don't need religion to be a good person. We react out of the brokenness to do something that hopefully next time won't be so broken. It's like a visceral reaction that ends up looking much like the pendulum swing I was just talking about. Okay, my point is, the broken experience is actually what becomes true for you in your life. And it doesn't matter how much right someone goes on and on about how much that's not true. You lived it, and so it's true. Right? It doesn't matter how much I even tr- like try to spiritualize stuff up here and stay, say stuff like, you know, I'm fine. You know, God has a better plan for me. I can tell myself these things all the time. But deep down, I know, and maybe you know, that what is true is not that. God obviously doesn't have a good plan for you because this experience has been the worst. And so you go to church, and you hear sermons like this one, but the entire time the content washes over you without actually sinking in or doing anything to you. The refrain of Jesus loves you means nothing if at the end of the day you have not experienced it 
to be true. And here's the kicker. Even if you have experienced it to be true, maybe you grew up in the church and you had this wonderful experience or you have wonderful parents who communicated that love of the Father to you, how much do you still actually believe that Jesus loves you? How much do you live out of that love? All right, and I don't say this to shame you, but to merely expose a problem. Our broken stories come with an underlying cry. They come with an underlying plea. You know what this plea is? It's a whisper. It's a whisper that says, Fill me. Fill me. Fix me. Make me whole. And isn't that what the entire story of the Bible is communicating? Because from this moment all the way to the end of Revelation, the people of God have a hunger, they have a longing to be made whole. It literally begins in the very next chapter with Cain and Abel, when Cain's longing to be filled, fixed, and made whole is misapplied, and he kills his brother Abel. Or how about the people of God as they're wandering through the wilderness for 40 years and are unable to enter into the promised land, as our New Testament text was talking about this morning. God can finally be set up and made king over this nation. But again, Israel's longing to be made, or to be filled, fixed, and made whole is misdirected, and they clamor for an earthly king, much like the other nations. An earthly king who does not do that. He's unable to provide the goods. And even when God comes in the person of Jesus Christ to fill, fix, and make whole his people, what do the people do? They crucify and mock him. Crying out, Hail, King of the Jews! The prodigal son demands his inheritance. The elder brother demands acknowledgement and respect. And the father says to the elder son, You are with me, always. And everything I have is yours. And again, if we're being honest with ourselves though, which I really want to invite you to do this morning, if we're being honest with ourselves, it still feels like it's not enough. It's never enough. This is why the answer to your broken story isn't a pendulum swing in the opposite direction. It isn't secularism that says work harder and do better next time. It isn't Buddhism that says just stop feeling the brokenness. If you can numb yourself to the pain that you've experienced enough, then it might go away. What if the answer to your broken story actually isn't an answer at all? What if it is first a question? What if God is actually asking you this morning, what is it you truly long for? What does your heart hunger after? I want to suggest that your answer to this question is is better than any kind of like canned answer that you could come up with. Why? Because it actually reveals your desire. I love sitting down across the table with my students and they're like, I don't know what's going on in my world. And I'm like, well, how are you feeling? What are your emotions? Makes Presbyterians feel uncomfortable. Um, makes me feel uncomfortable sometimes. But why, why is this so important? Why, and why am I droning on about emotions? It's because your emotions, it's because how you might answer this question, what do I long for, right? It actually reveals what Gollum in The Lord of the Rings calls your precious. What I think we'll come to find is that our desires aren't bad. 
Because the Bible, two chapters prior to this one, says that you were made in the image of God. I think we'll actually come to see our desires are God-given desires that have been severely misplaced. And so here's the thing. How does God respond to your misplaced desires? I'll tell you what he doesn't do. He doesn't ask you to just believe it. No, just blind faith. Grin and bear it. If that were the case, we'd have no hope. Because why are we any different than the people who crucified Jesus? They couldn't, and they didn't, just believe what is true. And so what does God do? He very simply promises to meet us in our longings by giving us a new story. A better story. By replacing our broken story with a true story. So this is where we pivot to the response of God, the storyteller, and my final point. Um, We used to, every night for a while, uh, read to our kids a book called uh, the Jesus Storybook Bible. And uh, I love how the author, Sally Lloyd-Jones, describes the Bible at the very start. And this is what she writes. She says, quote, No, the Bible isn't a book of rules or a book of heroes. The Bible is most of all a story. It's an adventure story about a young hero who comes from a far country to win back his lost treasure. It's a love story about a brave prince who leaves his palace, his throne, everything to rescue the one he loves. It's like the most wonderful of fairy tales that has come true in real life. End quote. So here's a hot take for you. Maybe not so much of a hot take. But for the Bible to be God's word, it ultimately has to be a story. Why? Because of exactly what we're talking about this morning. You have a story that is yours. It's a narrative that you live your life by. And just like any story, there are scripts given for each character. I mean, why is it that 110,000 people clamor to watch Michigan trample Washington in the big house under the lights, right? It's because we are caught up in a story that is bigger than our own. It's interesting, it's fascinating, and we can't get enough of it. And we all play a part, do we not? Like, even as a fan, you feel like there's a script you can play as you wave that pom-pom or as you yell at your TV, like, like me. Um, right? There's a play, or there's, there's a script you can play to, to be in this narrative, to be a part of this story. And it's grand and it's wonderful. For all of us, there's a script that we say every time another broken moment happens in our story. And again, to, to get vulnerable for a second, uh, for me, it's I'm too much. I talk too much. I'm too much personality. I'm too much. And maybe for you, it's something like, I don't have needs. I don't need people. I don't need food. I don't need. And the problem is that this is the fairy tale our hearts believe. We all believe a fairy tale. We all believe a story. And unfortunately, if we believe this one, right, it leads to insecurity Maybe eating disorders, isolation. Yet God comes to us and he intends to give us a new story and a new script. He's the master storyteller. His story is creation, how the world works, who we are and who he is. He's written it into the fabric of everything. Again, listen to some of the lyrics to the song Don't Forget to Remember by Ellie Holcomb. She sings... Did you know creation is talking to you? 
wherever you go and whatever you do. The earth will keep giving you clue after clue, so you won't forget to remember what's true. Like every day when the sun rises high, the warmth that you feel is God's love by your side. Oh, and just like the birds who keep humming their tune, remember God sings songs of joy over you. His call to us is a call to get wrapped up into a story greater than our own. And I'll I'll even say that's what you so desperately want. We all want to be wrapped up into a story that is greater than our own. The story that is written into the very DNA of the entire world. The grand story of the gospel and God's love for his people. So how does he communicate this story to us? You might be tempted to say something like the Bible, prayer, Sunday school answers, which are not wrong. But like I said, right, he doesn't just shove a story in our face and hope we believe. He doesn't say, hey, it's up to you now. You've been doing your quiet times in the morning. How much you've been praying? Are you becoming, you know, holy? What's your deal? No, God is so much better than kind of telling us to pull ourselves up by our own bootstraps. He intends to impress it upon our hearts by the power of His Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit impresses the gospel story upon our hearts through the retelling of the story of the Bible. And so this morning, the preached word, the sacraments of baptism and the Lord's Supper, like corporate worship, as ordinary as it is and as dull as it might seem, sometimes God is at work to do something miraculous here. And so when we hear the Bible preached, when we take in with our ears the voice of God singing over us, we hear His delight for us. Our souls are invigorated with the reality that He took on flesh to be with us, and by His, by his death and resurrection, He adopts us into His family. When we take the Lord's Supper, as we are about to do here in a second, we touch, taste, see, smell a physical manifestation of the gospel story. A physical manifestation of truth. That the life of Jesus Christ would be broken so ours can be whole. That the blood of Jesus Christ was shed and poured out so that our empty hearts might be filled and fixed by it. And so this changes our scripts. God, through the power of His Holy Spirit, changes our scripts to read, I'm just enough. I am lovable. I am worthy. And I'm missing perhaps one of the most vital and key components that God's Spirit uses to communicate to our hearts the story of redemption. And that is God's people. You. And this is no doubt one of the most exciting parts to being a Christian is that is the reality God uses you, Christian believer, to massage the truth of the gospel into the hearts and lives of other broken people. And so this means at least three things. If you're a Christian, your new story is a communal story. There is no me and Jesus Christianity. Membership at a local church is essential. It is only in Christian community that you can count on fellow believers to communicate with their words, their lives, and their friendship what is ultimately true about God and His work on your behalf. Put another way, you need a family. You're no longer an orphan. Number two, because this is true, your Christian community is designed to be your primary and most important community. I love my neighbors. I love my friends at the gym when I used to work out. 
I love my colleagues at work. Uh, my colleague at work. <laughs> um, right? As much as I love friends and, and people in other spheres of life, church community, the people of God, has to be my primary community. Putting family first, you could say. Third implication is that being a Christian means that you're called to be outward facing. What I mean by that is your new story is not only communal, it's not only for the people of God, it's not only for your family, but it's also meant to be shared with the broken and weary world. It is a story of God bringing enemies and and adopting them as sons and daughters. So I'm going to say this. It's to the church's great shame that Christians in Ann Arbor can have a tendency to gather in holy huddles and completely isolate themselves from the rest of the culture. When God asked Adam and Eve, have you eaten of the tree of which I have commanded you not to eat? He's probing them to understand where they've taken their hunger, where they've taken their God-given desires. It's the question written all over the scriptures. The gospel is a story of God coming to us with an answer to our hunger, with an answer for our longings. We long to be longed for. And the cross demonstrates just how much God longs to be with you. Even this morning, no matter who you are or where you're coming from. So let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you that you are God for us, to us, that you have promised to be at work through us, despite how we might be feeling this morning. Um, Thank you that that can be true. It has to be true because I'm up here as a a very broken man preaching a a story of truth to broken people. And we need a God who is bigger than me, bigger than us, bigger than our stories. And so I pray that we would be a church that would take seriously the call to give people an experience of Jesus. Not just be the people who say one thing and do another. But that we would humbly because we don't have it all figured out, that we would humbly move toward the outsider and ask questions. That we would humbly move toward one another and ask questions. That there would be space to be a sinner here. There there would be space to um, ask questions of who you are, because we are confident that you meet us here. We are confident that you meet us here in the ordinary means of grace. The preached word, the, the eaten word, the sung word, the confessed word. Uh, Lord Jesus, you are the word of life. And so give us more of you today, we pray. All in your name, we do these things. Amen.